Legendary Passages, Episode 118 Philostratus the Elder Imagines, Book 2 Image 2 Centaurs and Hippolytus Previously, Theseus fought a war against the centaurs and cursed his son Hippolytus to an early death. In this passage, we hear descriptions of the education of Achilles by the centaur Chiron, female centaurs and their foals, and the tragic fate of Hippolytus. The first image is that of the boy Achilles, fated to fight and die in the Trojan War. He is an athletic boy being trained by the centaur Chiron, like many heroes before him. Chiron lets the boy ride on his back to teach him horse riding, and rewards his efforts with apples and honey. The second image is of pretty centaur mares, their beauty comparable to naiad mermaids or the horse-riding Amazons. Their babies are born fairly human, eventually sprouting manes and their feet becoming tender hooves, turning wild at a young age. The last image shows the end of Hippolytus, the son of Theseus and the Amazon Antiope. Theseus eventually married the sister of Ariadne, Phaedra, and when Hippolytus spurned her advances, she accused him instead. Theseus cursed his own son, and while Hippolytus rode his chariot along the shoreline, a white bull emerged from the waters terrified his horses, and the chariot crashed. The very landscape of the painting mourns the passing of the mangled youth, handsome even in the throes of death. Centaurs and Hippolytus, a legendary passage from Arthur Fairbanks translating Philostratus the Elder, Imagines Book 2, Images 2 to 4 The Education of Achilles A fawn and a hare, these are the spoils of hunting of Achilles as he is now, the Achilles who at Ilium will capture cities and horses and the ranks of men, and rivers will do battle with him when he refuses to let them flow, and as a reward of those exploits he will bear away Briseis and the seven maidens from Lesbos, and gold, and tripods, and authority over the Achaeans. But the exploits here depicted, done at Chiron's home, seem to deserve apples and honey as rewards, and you are content with small gifts, Achilles, you who one day will disdain whole cities, and marriage with Agamemnon's daughter. Nay, the Achilles who fights at the trench, who puts the Trojans to rout merely by a shouting, and who slays men right and left, and reddens the water of the Scamander, and also his immortal horses, and his dragging of Hector's body around the walls, and his lamentations on the breast of Patroclus. All this has been depicted by Homer, and he depicts him also as singing and praying and receiving Priam under his roof. This Achilles, however, a child, not yet conscious of valor, 
whom Chiron still nourishes upon milk and marrow and honey. He is offered to the painter as a delicate, sport-loving child, and already light of foot. For the boy's leg is straight, and his arms come down to his knees, for such arms are excellent assistants in the race. His hair is charming and loose, for Zephyrus in sport seems to shift it about, so that as it falls, now here, now there, the boy's appearance may be changed. Already the boy has a frowning brow, and an air of spirited haughtiness. But these are my gentle by a guileless look, and by gracious cheeks that send for a tender smile. The cloak he wears is probably his mother's gift, for it is beautiful, and its color is sea-purple with red glints, shading into a dark blue. Chiron flatters him by saying that he catches hairs like a lion and vies with fawns in running. At any rate, he has just caught a fawn and comes to Chiron to claim his reward, and Chiron, delighting to be asked, stands with four legs bent so as to be on a level with the boy, and offers him apples fair and fragrant from the fold of his garment, for their very fragrance seems to be depicted. And with his hand he offers him a honeycomb dripping with honey, thanks to the diligent foraging of the bees. For when bees find good meadows and become big with honey, the combs get filled to overflowing, and their cells pour it forth. Now Chiron is painted in every aspect like a centaur. Yet to combine a horse and human body is no wondrous deed, but to gloss over the juncture and to make the two into one whole, and, by Zeus, cause on to end and the other to begin in such wise as to elude the eye of the observer who should try to detect where the human body ends. This seems to me to demand an excellent painter. That the expression seen in the eye of Chiron is gentle is the result of his justice, but the lyre also does its part, through whose music he has become cultured. But now there is something of a cozening in his look, no doubt because Chiron knows that this soothes children and nurtures them better than milk. This is the scene at the entrance of the cave, and the boy out on the plain, the one who is sporting on the back of the centaur as if it were a horse, is still the same boy, for Chiron is teaching Achilles to ride horseback, and to use him exactly as a horse, and he is measuring his gait to what the boy can endure, and turning around he smiles at the boy when he laughs aloud with enjoyment and all but says to him, Lo, my hooves paw the ground for you without the use of spur. Lo, I even urge you on. The horse is indeed a spirited animal and gives no ground for laughter. For although you have been taught by me thus gently the art of horsemanship, divine boy, and are suited to such a horse as I, some day you shall ride on Xanthos and Balios, and you shall take many cities and slay many men, you merely running, and they trying to escape you. Such is Chiron's prophecy for the boy, a prophecy fair and auspicious, and quite unlike that of Xanthos. Female Centaurs
You used to think that the race of centaurs sprang from trees and rocks, or, by Zeus, just from mares. The mares which, men say, the son of Ixion covered, the man by whom the centaurs, through single creatures, come to have their double natures. But after all they had, as we see, mothers of the same stock, and wives next, and colts as their offspring, and a most delightful home. For I think you would not grow weary of Pelion, and the life there, and its wind-natured growth of ash, which furnishes spear-shafts that are straight, and at the same time do not break at the spearhead. And its caves are most beautiful, and the springs and the female centaurs beside them, like naiads, if we overlook the horse part of them, or like Amazons, if we consider them along with their horse bodies. For the delicacy of their female form gains in strength when the horse is seen in union with it. Of the baby centaurs, here some lie wrapped in swaddling clothes. Some have discarded their swaddling clothes. Some seem to be crying. Some are happy and smile as they suck flowing breasts. Some gamble beneath their mothers, while others embrace them when they kneel down. And one is throwing a stone at his mother, for already he grows wanton. The bodies of the infants have not yet taken on their definite shape, seeing that abundant milk is still their nourishment. But some that are already leaping about show a little shagginess, and have sprouted mane and hooves, though these are still tender. How beautiful the female centaurs are, even when they are horses. For some grow out of white mares, others are attached to chestnut mares, and the coats of others are dappled, but they glisten like those of horses that are well cared for. There is also a white female centaur that grows out of a black mare, and the very opposition of the colors helps to produce the united beauty of the whole. Hippolytus The wild beast is the curse of Theseus. Swift as dolphins, it has rushed at the horses of Hippolytus in the form of a white bull, and it has come from the sea against the youth quite unjustly. For his stepmother Phaedra concocted a story against him that was not true to the effect that Hippolytus loved her, but it was really herself that was in love with the youth. And Theseus, deceived by the tale, calls down upon his son the curse which we see here depicted. The horses, as you see, scorning the yoke, toss their manes unchecked, not stomping their feet like well-bred and intelligent creatures, but overcome with panic and terror, and splattering the plain with foam. One fleeing has turned its head toward the beast, another has leapt up at it, another looks at it askance, while the onrush of the fourth carries him into the sea, as though he had forgotten both himself and dry land. And with erect nostrils, they neigh shrilly, unless you fail to hear the painting. Of the wheels of the chariot, one has been torn from its spokes, as the chariot has tipped over upon it. The other has left its axle, and goes rolling off by itself, its momentum still turning it.
The horses of the attendants also are frightened, and in some cases thrown off their riders. While as for those who grasp them firmly about the neck, to what goal are they now carrying them? And thou, O youth that lovest chastity, thou hast suffered injustice at the hands of thy stepmother, and worst injustice at the hands of thy father, so that the painting itself mourns thee, having composed a sort of poetic lament in thine honor. Indeed, yon mountain peaks, over which thou didst hunt with Artemis, take the form of mourning women that teared in their cheeks, and the meadows in the form of beautiful youths, meadows which thou didst call undefiled, cause their flowers to wither for thee, and nymphs, thy nurses emerging from yonder springs, tear their hair and pour streams of water from their bosoms. Neither did thy courage protect thee, nor thy strong arm, but of thy members some have been torn off, and others crushed, and thy hair has been defiled with dirt. Thy breast is still breathing, as though it would not let go of the soul, and thine eyes gaze at all thy wounds. Ah, thy beauty! How proof it is against wounds no one would have dreamed. For not even now does it quit the body. Nay, a charm lingers even on thy wounds. This passage continues with Rodagone, but in our next episode we read a letter from Phaedra to Apollotus.